Speak sex. Uh, this is Eve Eurydice or Eurydice Eve, same person. And I want to give you an introduction to what Speak Sex is about um, and the topics that I think are most vital right now that I am asked about a lot and I have a different spin on that I think makes sense for the 21st century the 2020 looking forward era that I call the post-patriarchy. So basically, uh, I divide human history as we know it, the type of human history we have access to, you know, putting aside our bias of like what we can actually understand from the discoveries and the data and the archaeological findings. I divide history into pre-patriarchy, patriarchy, and post-patriarchy, which is the era we're in now, and the reason we have so much confusion about how to be a man, how to be a woman, how to date, how to love, how to interact, how to exchange, what to exchange, um, both in terms of intimacy, emotions, trust, uh, commitment, uh, fidelity, and in issues of uh, financial support, a exchange of money <laughs> um, and consent. And finally, all of our questions about what really has feminism achieved for women and for men? Um, and is there a place in today's confusing, chaotic um, arena stage um, where men and women still meet and try to love and mate? and become one, um, is there a place in all of that still for like motherhood and fatherhood? How does that all work out? So this is gonna be a very quick introduction and then I can release more information. But uh, basically in nature, things have always happened a certain way and continue to. And what does change a lot is culture. And culture is what we make and we change it all the time. So culture has no stability. We're supposed to be the stability, right? For each other, like the anchor and the, the lighthouse in the dark <laughs> and, and the, the counterbalance and the support for each other. But we no longer know how to do that. We no longer know like what's expected of us. Um, so my basic rules, um, if I put aside the, the great history of it all, um, are that in today's moment, men and women are equal and sh should be equal in every way. Um, that's what feminism asks of us. So unless we agree otherwise, men and women are equal, should not have to pay for each other, should not have to beg each other, and should not have to lie and cheat and kiss us and, and, and pretend to each other. Um, throughout all of the exchanges of like flirtation, friendship, uh, friendship with benefits, uh, love, insane uh, love <laughs> and lust, um, infatuation, and all the rest of it. Um, when the power dynamics 
and the dynamics of conquest come in is only, should only be uh, what it actually is in nature when the issue of procreation comes in. So until both parties, or at least until the, the mother is ready to become a mother, um, it's not an issue. We really, as feminist women, and we really, as feminist males, um, or trans men, or trans women, or whatever one's uh, favorite, you know, pronoun and, and, uh, you know, orientation is, we do not, um, have to differentiate our roles at all. Um, in a world that has already about 70 years ago, separated sex from procreation. So let me say that again. Um, sometime in the middle of the 20th century, we, the patriarchs, the patriarchy, <laughs> not necessarily uh, we, but the, the powers that be, uh, separated for all intents and purposes, legally, as well as practically, sex from procreation. And that was the reason of being for the patriarchy. So um, whether it's with birth control or paternity tests, which are so quick and easy and cheap right now, um, or with uh, different techniques of artificial insemination, um, you know, uh, all kinds of like reproduction through a lab, <laughs> um, gestational carriers, um, divorce, the prevalence of divorce and, and divorce law as it has grown since then, um, the legality of same-sex marriage and a lot of other, you know, changes. Of course, you know, abortion is, is a, is a constitutional right. Um, we have clearly separated sex from procreation. Um, and let me kind of unpack that a little bit. The patriarchy begins because man has to go to woman to have a genetic future, to, to, to live, to exist. <laughs> so without that, there is no such thing as the entire construct of civilization as we know it, uh, the good of it and the bad of it, the terrible beauty of it, right? Um, so I would simplify things by saying that in our ancient ancestors, um, at some point, Homo sapiens or before, uh, came to the knowledge, that first procreative knowledge, that it wasn't simply woman making babies, uh, but it was woman being inseminated by the male, making babies, and lo and behold, it's one baby per pregnancy. It's one father, sorry, one father per pregnancy, um, which is a pretty extraordinary understanding for for primitive, as we like to call it, you know, uh, uh, ancestral people to comprehend that even even though a woman in the wild could have sex with 20 partners in her in her last cycle only one of those men is the actual father of of the child that she's birthing so until then basically procreation was the realm of women and that's why so much of the earliest signs of uh, our understanding of worship, divinity, um, art, 
um, and and all the other kind of human expression on on cave walls or you know that that we have found and we have attempted to translate into our patriarchal and you know words and meanings um they all show the woman the fertile woman the fertilized woman the woman in propagation or about to propagate right so that's has always been the ultimate mystery of life um because that has always been the ultimate goal of life in nature to go on <laughs> um so among our, that's our most basic instinct, and it's also our only difference in nature. Uh, nature doesn't really recognize or care for all of our other potential minor differences, which now we call cultural differences, but nature does care about the procreative future, the procreators and non-procreators, let's call them, which is the people who have the potential to become mothers and the people who don't. Um, and we're all born as non-procreators. And if we don't have children, we spend our whole life as non-procreators. So calling a woman a mother is a misnomer and it doesn't quite describe what's involved. Um, a, a woman who has a functional womb is merely a potential procreator, which really practically means nothing in nature, to nature. Um, uh, so until uh, the onset of menstruation, when the potential for procreation begins, um, and and going on until menopause, when that functionality ends, is completed, um, that is the brief period when some of us are potential procreators, but we really aren't procreators until we have conceived. And in the modern era, we also have decided to have our child, right? Um, so ancient men, back to ancient men, uh, tens of thousands of years ago, is kind of left outside. You know, that warmth and all that like uh, love activity and the fascination of the woman who was like in heat and, in, and crazy for him, but she's now crazy for this child and she's, you know, programmed by nature to do everything for the child and die for the child. And in exchange, that child who was inside her, feeding off of her, you know, is out and is just like completely focused on her for survival and eats off of her body and kind of learns from her by staring at her at first, right? So, and we don't know what sounds or languages there were then, but what we can guess is that men left a sort of, felt a sort of procreative envy and felt left out. You know, was left out of that kind of like magical circle duality of the two. Um, and the way to break into that and share in that kind of like family, in that huddling that could be, you know, long term, um, the only way to do that would be to acquire that extraordinary knowledge that would allow him to say, I belong here somehow. Um, you know, even though his procreative job, you know, literally speaking, is the quick unconscious insemination, <laughs> you know, one ejaculation, and it's over, his job's over. You know, she may conceive two weeks later, and then the hard work of 
you know, building a human with from one's body and then splitting one's body open to become two or more out of being one begins, you know, and then having that life depend on nourishment from the mother's body. It goes on and on, you know, the the, the raising of the young um, in our current era, uh, we have made a very big part for fatherhood, and we can keep that or not as we want, but when it comes to nature, the job of fatherhood kind of like ended with insemination, with ejaculation. Um, but once father guessed or understood that this child may look like him, this child may be him, maybe his, um, he made himself of use <laughs> um, by creating you know, providing shelter or going and getting like big game to give the mother meat to help her with like, you know, having the pregnancy or having milk, all that stuff that we assume, we don't know 100%, but we assume uh, came with that type of knowledge. And from that original knowledge of like one pregnancy, one inseminator, comes the basic concept the original concept of the patriarchy, which was if we could just, we men, could just have a womb exclusively from like virginity until menopause, each man to himself, like one womb per man, if, we, if a man could conjugate a womb and keep it, no matter what it cost to him, it would be great because in exchange he would have access to a genetic future um, and, and, and a way to pass on not just his genes but his essence, his sense of himself in the world for whatever that meant back then. Um, and that's how we very slowly, because um, all these things happen slowly, even though change seems to be quick, um, come into the creation of patriarchal societies um, sometime around 7,000 BC, 6,000 BC. A lot of it coincides with the beginning of the agrarian era because our ancestors stopped, as our ancestors stopped being nomadic, kind of like adapting to the weather and moving from place to place where, you know, they could like find um, fruit um, or, or harvest or big game or small game, um, water, all of that, as they decided to kind of settle. Um, and I'm not sure that the two decisions were not connected, that the idea of, of possessing womb was not the imperative, the impetus for kind of settling roots, um, which facilitated what we call the patriarchy, right? Because stability meant yeah, made made it easier to kind of watch um, the activity of of a, of a procreative woman, of a woman during her fertile years, and so we kind of know. I'm not going to go into it now. We kind of know where all of that led. It did lead to the creation of trade and money <laughs> and hierarchies of authority. Um, and a, a type of domestication of the of the fertile feminine, um, legally uh, and financially, 
which only in recent years, um, maybe the last, I don't know, two millennia <laughs> or less, uh, it began to slowly kind of unravel um, again, and partly because fathers uh, wanted to give their own daughters who until their daughters became, uh, you know, women, menstruating women, seemed to them equal, wanted to give them an education and give them more rights. So, um, but in the process of everything that civilization created, every development, every invention, every extraordinary knowledge that we've achieved, every new thinking, you know, in the process of all of that, the patriarchy, dynastic control, you know, familial uh, longevity, generational wealth and power kept going, you know, kept incentivizing their perpetuation. Um, and so here we, we are, we find ourselves in the middle of the 20th century and we have World War II, which was humanity's first realization that it could suicide. <laughs> you know, it could really kind of like kill itself um, as a result of this kind of like big dynastic fights between, uh, you know, men in charge, uh, dictatorial men in charge, right? Um, so there was a moment of reckoning, a long moment of a complicated reckoning um, among the survivors of World War II. Um, and it resulted in a lot of what has happened now, um, including the digital life, which makes it less likely that we nuke each other to extinction, um, and our cyber warfare, which again makes it less likely that we will, you know, uh, destroy millions of non-combatants <laughs> uh, by dropping nukes and whatever. But in the process also of the same uh, progress, patriarchy, I call it, um, solved the mystery of procreation. So our scientists who had invented the bomb, kind of the same type of people, um, understood the genetic sequencing was there and began to unravel it. Um, and in the same way, and I'm not going to go into the scientific information because this is not my specialty. Um, in the same way uh, that that they found the key to paternity, to that ultimate knowledge that used to be the knowledge only of the mother, and which made the father or man in general, you know, existentially insecure, because really, even if he thought he had you know, like locked her up, it was always possible that she had, you know, done something he didn't know about and he was raising another man's child. It was always possible. And women were trained by their mothers and elders to keep the secrets at all costs. And men were raised with this sort of like procreative insecurity, right? Um, which made the genders distrust one another. Um, and then we have the sexual revolution, which is not accidentally, but completely a result 
of 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 the um, scientific revolution and progress. So just as we get access to functioning birth control for women to use, we have the sexual revolution, <laughs> and then we have. Um, you know, different ways of dealing with infertility. Um, and again, it's a slow process that involves different types, forms of IVF. Um, and then at the same time, pretty much, you know, the interest in like gender, um, gender surgery basically, um, begins and, and there is a lot of kind of, uh, opening up and experimentation about reassignment therapy, um, whether with, you know, hormones or with, with medical intervention. Um, all of that is a result of the fact that patriarchy has lost its reason for being, its raison d'etre. If we know who the father is, like what's the reason for all of these rules and regulations and constructs and all these complicated ways we've come up with for men to convince women to choose them, pick me, pick me, I'm like the richest one, the strongest one, the best one, and you know, once you pick me, that's it for life. Um, so marriage also, as it used to be for many, many, many generations that had who had no choice, um, and if they were wealthy or sneaky, uh, <laughs> maybe they would, you know, have some other um, uh, avenues for sexual experimentation, but they were trying really hard to stick to that one um, official partner for procreation, uh, whether that partner was picked for them by their parents or by their tribe or by the elders or by custom or by the matchmaker or whether in more recent years that partner was picked somewhat also blindly by, you know, romantic impulse, right? And we do have countless romantic urges through our lives. But, you know, there was a period where like the earliest one was the one we had to stick to. Um, and that was before the middle of the 20th century with romanticism. So that's kind of like a very, very uh, quick <laughs> summary of how we get to this moment in post-patriarchy and how um, what we call feminism has been um, a way, in fact, to perpetuate the dynamic of non-procreators controlling procreators. And what do I mean by that? I mean that the people who do not uh, do the work of getting pregnant, giving birth, breastfeeding, uh, potty training, teaching how to crawl, teaching how to speak, all of you know the really basic work of motherhood um, are usually the people who must financially support the person who does that. So it could be a husband, uh, it could be a father of the bride, of the, of the mother, uh, or, so through like inheritance or some other sort of wealth. Um, but nevertheless, you know, procreative sex is still a privatized um, economy. It's an economy of dependency. The mother is still dependent on someone 
to kind of guarantee her financial support and that of her child for as long as necessary, right? So we are, even though we've separated sex from procreation, we are perpetuating those old ass dynamics of um, culturally selecting the, the richest, the loudest, <laughs> um, and not necessarily the best fit for a long-term relationship um, as, a, as, as a father or a mother for our children. You know, we go a lot by like what people will think or what it looks on paper <laughs> like is the best option which is very cynical because we're speaking the words of love and commitment, um, but in the background of our minds, this, this reality, this financial reality is there looming. And for men, it's, it feels like a moral debt. It feels like if a woman actually has my child, it is my debt to be betrothed to her, to be... to. I am beholden to her, and I have to pay for it. I, you know, it will cost me. It has to cost me, right? That's the feeling. And for women, again, what comes up is that as feminist as you may be, and as um, equal as you may be in your career, in your education, um, and in your life choices, there is that kind of like unspoken feeling that, you know, I'm screaming here in pain and my body's breaking up and you are getting to put your name on the birth certificate and you are getting to share half of the right of kind of like legally owning this new person. Um, so you owe me, <laughs> right? And that's where the whole messed up confusion about who pays for whom and what men, women uh, are doing in love, in sex, and in dating becomes so confused. The way to unconfuse it is to separate motherhood and fatherhood, which is a more optional category, motherhood and fatherhood from womanhood and manhood and from our sexual anatomies and our sexual proclivities and choices and um, and paths and journeys. Um, and to be able to speak up that truth, to understand it uh, conceptually first in our minds so that we can begin to have these conversations with the people we're attracted to and the people we fall in love with and the people we want to spend a lot of time with and then the people we may want to have babies with, which don't have to be the same categories. So the first task would be to actually begin to separate the expectation of like, I want to be with you, I want to touch you, I want to smell you. Um, you're just, I'm obsessing about you. I'm so bio psychochemically attracted to you that like right now nothing else matters. Um, you're it right now. We have to separate that from, I want you to be the parent of my child. <laughs> I want you to bring my child to this world and raise her or him. Or I want to bring your child to this world and 
raise him and her with you. Those are two different categories. And understanding the difference between sex, love, dating, flirting, and motherhood, fatherhood, procreation, and separating the two legally, as well as morally, as well as uh, socially in our daily lives, is what we need to do in order to move forward <laughs> into this 21st century without losing our minds. <laughs> um, and I do feel that a lot of the confusion about a lot of other things, whether it is um, politics and vaccines or like uh, gender identification, um, uh, stem from that very deep, primal, procreative confusion that we're in. Um, so I would say um, there is a lot, there is a lot more to say about this, um, but I would say that kind of understanding that for ourselves as we meet people, as we date people and speaking of it in a way that is inclusive, loving, accepting and not alienating, finding a way to say, I love you, I want to be with you, I don't want to be the mother or the father of your child. And also us answering that question for ourselves. Do we want to be a mother or a father? Um, with whom? Or if we want to be with anyone? And if it's something that we want to do differently, then that is the topic for my next video, which is on universal mother income which is basically what I think is the next step for us to do as a nation, as a culture, as a global culture, uh, and that is to create an option for mothers to choose to have a child without the dependency, uh, which could be a lie, <laughs> without the, the forced dependency on, on a partner, um, who may or may not want to be in it. Um, and that option, which I call universal mother income, um, and I have kind of like a whole platform for how it would work, I think is necessary if we actually do mean my body, my choice, if we do mean um, the right of a woman to be pregnant or not, you know, because pregnancy is not just pregnancy. It also includes birth and raising, and all of this includes money and a sense of one's independence and freedom in the world. And especially for, for women who uh, only recently, uh, you know, earned the, the right to have careers and to be promoted and to be paid more and more or less equitably and to make a place for themselves in the world, in a world that's deeply masculinized, it's a very, very difficult decision and choice to make. It's a very, it feels like a very self-denying <laughs> and it is selfless <laughs> a, you know, decision to make. So how do we explain that and optimize that? But as I said, that's another topic. For now, I just would like to give this introduction of how we can begin to separate sex from procreation um, 
in especially when it comes to our transactions and our relationship of sex and money. In uh, today's episode of uh, Intro to Speak Sex and my understanding of patriarchy and post-patriarchy, which is the era we live in, post-patriarchy, and pre-patriarchy, which is the era we know very little about because the little that we have found from it, we have translated with uh, our patriarchal bias to kind of cohere with our uh, the sense that we have made of our world and of culture since uh, the beginning of the patriarchy, which is really the beginning of what we know as history, civilization, um, and order. <laughs> um, and it seems to me that we live in times of uh, post-patriarchy because our uh, definitions of procreative roles um, have have been changed culturally um, and we have separated procreation from sex. Um, so by, by means of um, artificial insemination, birth control, uh, legalized abortion, IVF, uh, gestational carriers, and all of the other details in our reproductive law, um, which keeps changing and um, which continues to represent the split between woman and her body, which uh, took place at the conception of patriarchy. So basically, um, out of man's existential loneliness, procreative loneliness, and his procreative insecurity, um, his dependency on women in order to have a genetic future, uh, this terrible beauty was born, the patriarchy. Um, and everything we now take for granted, whether it's our concepts of money and trade, um, power and success, uh, dynasty or fame, um, ethnic or religious or sexual, or, or other identity, all um, have come from that initial impetus, right? P almost like post, you know, uh, natural impetus um, to make up for that imbalance, procreative imbalance, for the procreative advantage that nature gives to women. Um, and I want to unpack a little that procreative advantage, so to speak, right now. Because this is how it happens. And this is the first split from which so many other splits <laughs> have, have come. Um, so the, 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 real, the real split in nature happens in reproduction. It happens in birth or in other species, in propagation. Um, the, the patriarchal, let's say, split occurred because men separated the procreative role of woman from woman and decided, kind of like inserted himself in the middle of it um, <laughs> and insisted on uh, kind of like co-owning the womb 
and uh, participating from moment you know from moment one of the newborn's uh, appearance into that relationship uh, between mother Madonna and child um, between mother and the life that came out of mother so there are, for 10 ma- months you know it, a child lives off the mother and I don't want to say the body of the mother because that's how we split uh, our ourselves into body and mind um, our bodies ourselves <laughs> our body and our mind are one and the quest for that reunion is part of my project here with speak sex a, a quest to reunite culture with nature and to reunite uh, ourselves with um, our essential being um, so the inception of the patriarchy basically um, reversed the procreative order, let's say, in nature. Um, and whereas the female had a procreative advantage in nature um, by being the one who conceives and births and therefore, let's say, naturally owns the newborn that comes out of her body and is still dependent on her uh, and her body for nourishment, um, and for consciousness, um, men through patriarchy reverses that and makes the the newborn the uh, own the the ownership of the father, ergo the paternal name, paternity rights, uh, um, the fatherland, <laughs> and countless other um, ways that we have of thinking about who we are. Um, that prioritize paternity and kind of like erase or take for granted maternity as if she were the vessel rather than the only actor. (laughs) Um, So even though practically speaking, you know, men's uh, procreative job basically begins and ends with a, you know, orgasmic ejaculation, um, and mother's work uh, takes at least oh, pretty much almost a year <laughs> before the actual birth where the mothering work that we begin to see begins. Um, but, it, but it's all pretty hard, hard labor, even though that's how it works in nature. That's basically the the difference in, in contribution and in accreditation that that is in nature, in culture uh, that is reversed. Um, And that is kind of like how men um, made up for that imbalance that struck, I think, at the core of him and his sense of himself in the world, right? Um, So, and here we are, we have separated sex from procreation. So, the reason for the patriarchy is no more. Um, men can hire a gestational carrier and um, hire an egg donor and um, you know, send his sperm to a clinic and basically pay a few dollars, show up at the designated time and place of birth and pick up the child that's legally his. So the 
the fundamental reason for the patriarchy is no more. And that's why we're so distraught. We're so distraught and so unclear. And that feeds, of course, our paranoia. And we want to fight for what's natural. We want to not go deeper and deeper in, into a path that, that feels artificial and made up. <laughs> and so we have these cultural wars. Um, trying to overthink and over-verbalize our split from nature as a culture. Um, and that split begins with the split between woman, and I could spell woman with a B. <laughs> woman is a, a person who has a womb that's functional from uh, her procreative body, from her uterus, from her womb. Um, so this is how that actually kind of like happens uh, in nature. We are born, you know, our procreative difference, which is not sexual anatomy because we don't see it, um, and it's not sexual orientation because we can have sex any which way we want. Our procreative function is much more uh, elemental. Um, it's pretty much, you know, more essential than our function of like uh, hunger and thirst and, and breath, right? Um, to nature, it's more elemental. <laughs> um, it's really nature's main interest is um, proliferation, right? Reproduction, um, the perpetuation. Um, so the optimal perpetuation, in fact, which in our day has become cultural selection. Uh, we have left the days of natural selection, uh, to use Darwin's uh, semi-biased term, long behind us. Um, we are definitely culturally selecting are young, and I can go back to that topic. But how it happens in nature is this. We're born pretty much all alike. I mean, you know, we can look differently cosmetically. <laughs> we can have different exterior, you know, sexual organs, or we can have different eye color or hair color or skin color or, I don't know, size <laughs> um, and voice. But basically, we're all born the same. Uh, from the point of view of nature, which is non-procreators. And we stay in that role until we hit puberty. And when you are a, a girl, a female, um, procreatively speaking, not sexually speaking, uh, when you are a female, you experience this as an overnight change. Um, a change that's so abrupt that you really think that you've earned it. <laughs> um, and that's where the first confusion begins. You know, the first kind of like cultural confusion begins. Um, because when we suddenly grow curves um, without any of our doing, <laughs> and our skin suddenly glows, <laughs> and we become... Um, powerful in, in the sense of attraction, um, we don't realize 
mentally, cognitively, that our power, our appeal, our magnetism comes from nature and that we haven't earned it. Uh, it doesn't speak about us, our cultural sense of us, our sense of self, right? All this new power um, is nature's power. I remember it very much uh, in my life because I was a kid and I was invisible. And the first time that I earned, you know, the right to basically be noticed is by uh, learning, um, memorizing Homer. <laughs> uh, and then I would recite it to the adults. You know, my dad would bring his friends home from work when I was like little, you know, three or or. or whatever, and he would have me read the newspaper. And so I learned that um, thinking like a, like a man um, and impressing the man <laughs> was the only way to have an identity that wasn't completely invisible. Otherwise, I was just an invisible uh, child, pes, as in pedi, pedagog pedagog pedagogy, right? Uh, loose in the middle of a busy culture, a busy humanity, um, and I was just an appendix. I belonged to my parents, mostly my dad, whose name I carried. I got some attention from authority, from the powers that be, from teachers, from my grandfather, who was a priest, from my father, who was very educated and worked for the Ministry uh, of Agriculture and took me to the uh, receptions where the minister attended, where he had me again, you know, recite um, and show basically like you know, the Hellenic pride. <laughs> um, but it was all intellectual pursuit and intellectual accomplishment. So in childhood, I learned that the way out of my gender destiny and the gender limitations and tropes, which were what I had watched my mom and my grandmothers and my aunts uh, perform, which was basically silence, domestic work, uh, work in the garden, obedience, um, uh, just labor and, and isolation. Um, the way forward, my culture told me, my progressive, modern 1970s and um, you know, post-1960s, uh, 1970s and 80s culture in Europe uh, taught me this was my only hack. This was the way <laughs> uh, for me to, to become somebody, to be seen, to be to have a name, uh, even though it was my dad's name, and I did represent him and our, our patrilineage wherever I was in my small country. <laughs> uh, there are only 10 to 15 million of us Greeks in the world. Um, and uh, I kind of focused on that. I dressed as a boy. Uh, it wasn't called cross-dressing or, or you know, non-gender conforming back then, but I was consciously trying not to uh, um, uh, acknowledge my gendered, uh, my innate gender, my, my, my gender that I was supposed to have. Um, and I got beaten <laughs> for not wanting to wear the dress to Sunday school and so on. But the, um, 
The point is, one day I was this child, and if I got lost and was, couldn't get, find my parents, well, what would become of me? There was nothing. There was no other option. I lived in complete dependency on their good graces and moods, which could be good or bad. Um, that was it. I was legally bound to them. Uh, and then I got my period and I began to menstruate. And something changed. And I didn't know what, because I hadn't changed. I hadn't changed. I was just like, I was still reading on my way to school and back. <laughs> um, but boys started following me, like flocking behind me. And... Um, But boys started, you know, following me, uh, flocking behind me. So, and I didn't understand it. At first, in fact, I was oblivious to it. Uh, I had just got my period. I didn't even know I was supposed to have my period because my mom neglected to tell me. Apparently, my dad says he had taken me to the beach one day and explained me uh, the birds to me, the birds and the bees. <laughs> and I must have blocked it from my memory. It must have been so uncomfortable. I probably spaced out and started thinking about something else, like, um, you know, a certain w word in, in uh, Homer. <laughs> My mom gave me these like giant pads. Do not use a tampon because you may lose your virginity. I am completely a child. <laughs> um, and after the boys started following me, they started making themselves more and more noticed until what shocked me once was that one boy wrote my name um, on his arm, forearm, uh, with, with a razor and it was bleeding. And that made me stop and notice and, you know, horrified me. Um, so the, the lesson from all of this, <laughs> that I was suddenly horrified when that boy hurt himself using my name, writing my name, scraping my name on his skin uh, with one of, our, of, this, of the tools we used in art class um, in the street. And you know, all the boys screamed, and he showed it to me, and he must have said, I want you or something, but it, that didn't really register, because as I said, I was a child, um, and I didn't even associate menstruation and the pads and the kind of discomfort of that with what was happening. I didn't really know that like my breasts were growing enough or... Um, I don't know, my buttocks were growing. I really have no consciousness of any of that. I was still me. And that's what I'm saying about how the puberty um, hits and separates us in a sense because of, of the way that our culture trains us to only understand ourselves in our masculine identity, in our patriarchal identity, is, is what I mean. So I don't use masculinized to mean feminine versus masculine, and I use it to mean specifically patriarchal. Um, and so I understood myself as the thinking, writing, uh, kind of like precocious, uh, you know, super smart me, and I had no idea what was going on, but suddenly I was wanted. I was basically one day a child, and the next 
I was a prepubescent, an adolescent, a nymphette, I guess, whatever those patriarchal terms are. Um, but that change had not taken place in me. <laughs> I didn't know that. Um, so I had... I created an identity such as it was up until then uh, as a precocious, intelligent kid. Um, when I realized early on, I taught myself to, how to read uh, when I broke my leg and had to, be lying, to lie in bed in a full body cast um, on Lesbos. I think I was about three and people out of pity, I guess, gave me uh, children's books and they would read them to me and I must have memorized the words per page and got and did it on my own enough to understand language. Um, so that impressed my father and for the first time he noticed me. I was noticed if I was at all because I had the prodigious memory and because I understood logos, language, word, meaning, that's who I thought of myself as. So I actually covered up my gender as best I could because I didn't want it to sneak out in any way. And then puberty happens. I don't know it happens. I don't feel anything. I'm not in heat. Like I'm not, it, it hasn't uh, you know, happened to me. It hasn't hit me yet, but I see it in the world outside me. And what I realize retrospectively is that this was not my doing. My learning was my doing. My uh, the hundreds of hours I spent and the thousands of books I consumed, that was my doing. This was not my doing, this was nature. And yet we give so much value and respect to beauty and youth and sex appeal. And that's where culture confuses us, and from there on it stays confusing. So that's when we mix, we confuse, you know, sex and procreation, so to speak, and now we no longer have to, but patriarchy programmed us to. So um, in my case, when I saw puberty's effect on everyone around me, I saw uh, my father's friends, you know, who were like the mayor or the professor. He, my dad was a professor, you know, and so on and so forth. People, you know, men in authority, they would suddenly focus on me even more and want to talk to me for a long time. My teacher, you know, would talk to me for hours after school. Also, he was a, a male unmarried teacher. Um, and I just kind of, you know, and then I'm walking to uh, after school, like of German class or English class or French class or, you know, whatever I was learning, Spanish, etc. after school lessons. And I had to go through the park in the, in the, town of Iraklion, Crete, where we had moved to from Athens. And I was walking through the Kazanjakis Park, um, and men would like flash me, men would come out of nowhere and catcall and holler and whistle and say, you know, you want to be mine? Has anyone told you? You know, do you want to, you know, hang out? Let's go. You want me to take you for a drink? You want to go for coffee? And I just realized I have takers. I have options. I didn't know why, but I knew I would not be destroyed if I left home. And it was puberty in some very fundamental way that told me, you can move on. You don't have to belong to this like paternal control forever. And literally three years later, 
about when I turned 15, I convinced my dad after numerous fights <laughs> to sign my emancipation papers and I left for America on my own. Um, I went to Los Angeles from Heraklion Crete. But that understanding that there would be others to look after me, that I was a wanted commodity somehow in the world, that I had acquired the value, whereas up to then I was just invisible. I didn't really have like a, an essential value. That was puberty and that was the work of nature. And I have never personally identified with uh, what the body does as my doing. So um, I haven't thought that, you know, whether my body is attractive or, or harmonious or how my face looks. I think I, that's the work of nature. And I did owe nature a great debt when she allowed me, thanks to uh, uh, whatever she made of me, um, the, the freedom to get out of home, and I paid that debt when I conceived, when I became a mom, and I knew that. I sensed very deeply that now I am paying nature. I have this cultural choice whether or not to keep my child that I have received as a human in the 21st century, but I also felt that my deep, duty to nature was to have this child and see my procreative function through. And I did feel that what I had received, the freedom, the rights that I had received, the empowerment that I had received thanks to nature uh, when I was 15. <laughs> and, and for a while after, for a long while after, pretty much until I conceived, um, I was repaying by having life, and my debt to nature was paid off. And that, that is what I um, want to point out. We misunderstand men and women when we get our worth, our value from our sexual body, from our sexual promise, from our sexual appearance, rather than from our procreative unseen function and productivity. Have we met our procreative promise? Have we paid our debt to nature? Um, it is not you or me who makes you beautiful and valued and gets uh, a girl or a boy to want to be with you, spend money on you, uh, give up their, you know, their family and their homeland for you. It's not you who do that. It's not the I of the self. It's Mother Nature. And respecting nature, respecting our sisters, sequoias, and respecting our brother species, uh, so many of whom are engendered because we uh, emphasize culture so much at the expense of nature, is the same as respecting the nature within us, the animal within us, and finding a way to value that as much as we value our cultural achievement and our cultural worth is very important, and that's the way we can reconcile nature and culture. And one of the ways to do that is to 
validate motherhood by recognizing the work of motherhood as important work and giving it a monetary value, giving it a salary, making it a respectable, productive, important job to do in our culture, integrating nature back in our culture, deprivatizing <laughs> uh, the work of motherhood so that a mother, a potential mother, has the option of not becoming dependent and beholden on her father or her husband or her partner um, when she chooses to be a mother. So she has an actual real choice, which includes the choice to be financially supported while she does this really super important and super difficult work um, and have that equally valued and respected. Um, and again, how I want to close is with the fact that our work as procreators ends and then we resume all of our other identities, um, uh, both uh, you know in the cultural sense and in the natural sense. So it's not a, a, a career, <laughs> but it is a rite of passage. And if men had the rite of passage into adulthood through war, that was a way to, again, copy culturally, emulate and, and echo and, and reflect um, the, the rite of passage into motherhood, which is equally violent and equally extraordinary. Um, and demedicalizing um, the beauty of, of, of birth is also an important step forward. Um, both of my grandmothers, you know, had children while they were working in the garden or in the olive grove, <laughs> you know, right then and there. Um, I went against all medical advice, so I had to like sign off, uh, you know, against the advice of my doctor, my obstetrician uh, here in Miami Beach and I gave birth under the guidance of a midwife who uh, started the first female-owned uh, midwife center, birthing center, first in Texas, and then she moved it here in Miami Beach. When I met her, she had already given 15,000 births. I am sure she has now upped that number to like 50,000. And she manually um, dilated me, my uterus, because it wasn't dilating, and that would mean I would have to get a C-section. So she manually dilated it during contractions, just dipping her fingers in uh, primrose essential oil, I remember. Broke my water bag, and under the rain uh, in a jacuzzi, I gave gravity-free birth, um, and it was a fully cognizant experience. It didn't really hurt. It was that experience of, of, of pain becoming glory. Um, and the, you know, the child, <laughs> the other who was in me and I together uh, cohered and pushed forward beyond our perceived, culturally perceived limit. Um, and that's kind of like created the hack. You know, this is 
for me, you know, motherhood um, is one of the great defiances of patriarchy because patriarchy is based on agrarian life, right? It needs the stability and the counting. How many are where? Who is in charge of whom? Agrarian uh, age gave birth, in a sense, to patriarchy, allowed for it, because it made us much more stable and accountable, right? So every time a mother gives birth, the numbers are off. It could be two or three or four children who come out of her, the numbers or the algorithm, as we say it now, the statistics have to change and get updated. And that's how we defy the culture. And that's why kind of like culture has posited itself at war with nature, but that's no longer sustainable because uh, the climate, as well as digital life and many other developments in post-patriarchy are preparing us to enter the post-agrarian era in which we will once again, in a new way, be nomads. Once again, we will adapt and move, be transitory, migratory, as so many other species, in order to adjust and adapt with the weather patterns and the climate as it changes. And we can do that if we're more mobile, if we don't need all of our uh, structures, all of our patriarchal um, uh, objects, <laughs> materials that define us, right? If we don't need to carry all of that with us wherever we go, if we become more nimble and have a lighter footprint and, and don't require 30 residences in order to get social respect, right? Or 30 wives. <laughs> um, so finding this way to fulfill, to meet the, the future and fulfill at the same time our procreative calling, what used to be called the procreative imperative, which is the one thing uh, we owe nature in our life, <laughs> um, is the way forward. And the hope could be an ideal, an ideal could be an ideal that we could maybe keep in our heads um, as, as, as we move forward, as we evolve, could be that we might become a post-archy, that we might trans evolve into a society, a culture, a unity, a union, um, which is a union of opposites that, uh, that, that is, is reorganized in a way that makes extreme hierarchy obsolete. And again, I think movement <laughs> the the giving up stability and accepting um, change as as the way of the world as truth as life is the way to do that the way to go forward we are the stability we want to see in the world we are the love that we have the connection that we have for each other we are the anchors we are the the light. Um, we are the weave, we are the hive, <laughs> we got each other. The emphasis is to hold on to each other rather than compete with each other, which is 
our dowry, our patriarchal dowry that we want to let go of, right? Divisions, um, words, names, categories, uh, you know, extreme um, data, <laughs> and specialization. That is what we want to evolve out of and focus on what we have in common, which is nature. And, and that's what we have in common with our ancestors, even before Homo sapiens, even uh, before Homo Neanderthal. <laughs> um, there is one discovered recently whom they called Grecopithecus, <laughs> a Greek monkey. I think that's probably my ancestor, millions of years old, five or six, they think. Um, and that is a thread of continuity and solidity and solidarity and stability that's real and we have it and it's in our nature and we're born in it. Our memory data, you know, uh, centers in our brains come equipped with so much ancestral, natural knowledge. So rather than spending 24, 25, 26 years retraining our brains to like understand modern <laughs> digital lifestyle exclusively, um, we might rethink our priorities and get ready for shedding some unnecessary cultural weight and becoming uh, more adaptable and more open to change, um, making our peace with our nature as a culture, as individuals, as, uh, as uh, identities, <laughs> um, and, and not overemphasizing one at the expense of the other, especially since it's nature whom we need the most. Because if there is a war between culture and nature, I'd bet on nature. That's it. Love you. And until next week, keep speaking sex. If I could make love incessantly, I would be God.